Welcome to episode 73 of the Luke Winstall Show. My next guest is a NFL PA certified agent and the president of Pick 6 Sports Management, Kari Wright. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Luke, I'm doing just fine. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to have you on. And my first question for you being an NFL agent, what was your journey like getting to be an agent? So I have had a, a pretty interesting journey. I was a high school math teacher for nine years. I also coached football and track, but I was always involved with sports, including on the business side. So one thing led to another, and as I, I coached different athletes who were moving on to the collegiate game, and then you know a few here and there would also be moving on to the professional ranks, I felt the need to put myself in position just in case they needed me or those like them needed someone like me with, you know, geared a little more towards personal attention with players. And so at the beginning of 2014, I decided to take that step and went through the the application process, the background check, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, upon, upon, you know, passing the background check, there is a course, a seminar that has to be done by way of the NFL PA on a yearly basis in D.C. in order to get certified. Upon completing that, there's a test, a pretty difficult test, I might add. And once I passed the test, I was ready to go. If I were to be a player coming out of college looking for an agent, what would your pitch sound like? So, at this particular point in my career, there's a certain type of player that I look for. And what I mean by that, it goes without saying that you want a guy who does have a skill set on the field, right? But in my case, because of the type of individual that I am and, you know, me having the background as a teacher, ultimately, for me, it's all about my ability to educate a player. And in addition to educating the player, give them the personal attention that they need. And so, you know, from a contract advisement side, we all have the capability of negotiating contract. I'm a math guy. I should have a, a mathematics degree. And so the negotiation process is, is, let me not say simple, but I don't really have that much difficulty dealing with contracts. But ultimately, it's all about, you know, what a player wants. If they prefer to be with a bigger agency and get certain, you know, initial bells and whistles and get wooed around, then so be it. But if they want somebody who is going to give them personal attention, but in addition to that, educate them about the process and as well as the, the overall business side, and in addition to that, be their agent for life. Ultimately, football is not a long-lasting sport. And so, you know, as, as you may know, Players, we're talking about roughly three and a half to four years on average that a player is going to play at the professional level. And so, therefore, I may be able to assist you in more ways away from the field post-career versus opportunities during your playing career. So, again, just having the overall package in it for the long haul, 
with the personal attention that I believe any player would want and need. I'm curious, with you having to negotiate a lot of contracts, what tips would you have for people trying to become better negotiators or get to the level of negotiation that you're at? So, with any field of business, the goal is to learn as much as you can, right? And so, there are several different contracts that have been negotiated throughout times. Now, granted, some are different depending on what CBA was in place at the at the moment it was negotiated. Just to give you an example, how contracts were negotiated in 2007 would be different than how they're negotiated in 2015 because you're under a, a different CBA, and so therefore there's certain aspect of it that's slightly different. But ultimately, it's all about understanding who are you comparing that particular player to. Because based upon who you're comparing that player to, it gives you a gauge as to you know what direction you may need to look towards. In addition to that, you have to know how each team negotiates. Because every team negotiate differently. Every team has different individuals that they put in place to negotiate. Some teams may have the individual who's over the salary cap do more negotiation excuse me, do more negotiations whereas another team you make more of your negotiations directly with ownership or you know the president and in some cases you may do negotiations more so with your general manager. And so I think all those things are very important. Again, knowing who to compare your player to, um, what aspects of the CBA that may work in your favor, and then just understanding each team and who you're negotiating with and, you know, their past negotiations, how they tend to go about negotiating contracts. That makes a lot of sense. And when you've got a player, how do you figure out who they compare to? So, for starters, on the field, set the tone, right? And so, you know, usually players, players and their play actually dictate dictate what market that they would be placed in, what tier of players and they will be, be placed in, if you will. So just to give you an example, if, you, if you're dealing with a guy who is at the wide receiver position and, you know, there's someone who is upper echelon in the 80 catch range and 13,400 yards and double-digit touchdowns, depending on their stat line as well as the impact that they made on their team, now you're looking at your top flight receivers. You know, so you're looking at your Mike Evans, your Julio Jones, your Michael Thomases of the world. But maybe they don't have that quite that stat line. But maybe they're in the you know, fifty reception range for, you know, somewhere a little less than a thousand yards. And so I say that to say you would then look at the second tier of receivers with comparable stats and negotiate, uh, negotiate your country according to that tier of receivers, if that makes sense. And a lot of it is, 
position predicated as well. And in addition to that, depending on the position, how long they've been in the league may determine, you know, what type of contract that you're able to negotiate. And so you can't negotiate the same deal for a 31-year-old running back, even if they're coming off a pretty good season, than you can for a 25-year-old running back who put up similar numbers. Definitely. Now, I'm curious, there will be articles on the internet talking about here are some of the best contracts in the NFL for teams. Here are some of the best for the players. For you as an agent, who are some other of your peers that you look up to or think they do a really good job or you have a lot of respect for? You know, I so there are a lot of excellent agents in the business. You know, let me let me preface my statement by saying that. And it's it's obviously difficult to mention every single individual within the business um, because, again, you do have a lot of guys who who do some some great negotiating who, you know, in some ways are very creative with their contracts. One name I will give you, however, is Lee Steinberg. You know, we're talking about someone who's been in the business since the late 70s. And, of course, the movie Jerry Maguire was modeled after Lee Steinberg. And so, you know, he's one of those guys, when you talk about contracts and, you know, just the ability to negotiate according to the team that he's dealing with, that's definitely one guy that you want to look towards. Another one is Tom Cunning. Again, excellent negotiator. Has been doing it for a long time, very shrewd. Um, it's, again, it's, it's a lot of guys within the profession that do an excellent job of negotiating contracts. And, you know, if I were to, it'd be difficult for me to name all of them, but those are, are just two of the guys that, you know, I look towards. When you talk about negotiating contracts, how long does that process usually take? I know it's different from player to player, but maybe on average, how long do you think it is? Well, that's an interesting question as well because, as you said, not only does it differ from player to player, it differs from team to team. And in addition to that, it varies you know, based upon what you're asking for as a player, but also maybe what a team is perhaps asking you to conform to when it comes to structure. And so depending on how close those things align, it will determine how long that process drags out. Furthermore, there are differences between doing a contract extension of an existing deal versus a free agent contract. And based upon that, there, there are time limitations placed upon it. Again, just to give you an example, if you're dealing with a player who's going to be a free agent as of the start of the new league year, meaning their last season. So let's take Tom Brady, for example. He was a free agent as of March 2020. And so when you talk about negotiations, he's at the top of the market. It's going to go pretty quick, as in first 24 hours of free agency is a good chance that players like that are going to have their deals done. So when you look at the second wave of free agency, it may take 
you know, perhaps another week to get a deal done. And then once you get past that second wave, then for various reasons, you could look at an extra two months, three months, four months at times. So, so it's, I guess to answer your question, it's hard to give an average because there's, there's so many factors that come into play. Um, if I were to, I think I could give you a better average if you're talking about contract extensions, you know, with guys that may have one year left on the deal. And usually with those guys, you're going to see those deals tend to get done during the summertime. You know, mid-summer, you know, maybe right before training camp. That's when you see the majority of your contract extensions take place. I'm wondering if you can take us a little bit inside what a contract negotiation look lo- looks like for a player that gets drafted. Where does it start and what does that look like? So, depends on the round. If you're talking about first round picks, then there are, there are certain specific things that you would prefer to negotiate. Number one is once you get out, now granted, with first round picks, there are a certain number who essentially automatically have their first four years of the deal guaranteed. And so, that's number one. Can you get all four years of the existing contract guarantee. And this doesn't include the fifth-year option, just the, the, the four years that are actually on the paragraph five. Can you get that guarantee? So that's number one. Secondly, how is the signing bonus going to get paid out? Are we going to get it literally upon signing? Um, just to give an example, if a player has a $19 million signing bonus, Will we be able to get all 19 right now upon signing? Um, some teams decide, may decide we'll pay nine of it right now, and we'll pay the other 10 once we are to the next league year. So meaning they perhaps the following March, the player may get the other 10. The goal, of course, is to attempt to get the entire signing bonus up front. And lastly, offset language, meaning can we have a contract, you know, between having full offset language, partial offset language, or no offset language. Um, and so those are those are usually your three things that you're looking at for your first round picks. Once you get past the first round, everything tends to fall in place again. You're attempting to get certain years guaranteed within the deal in the second round. But you're gonna it's a good chance you're not going to get all four years guaranteed for pick number fifty four of the second round. Okay, so you may get three of the four years guaranteed. So you know again some of it is round predicated. And because of the slots that players are picked in, that in some ways predetermines what the bottom line number is that they're going to get. And usually based upon, you know, just to draw you in a little closer, you're looking at what did the pick before and what did the pick after get. And based upon that, it gives you a great gauge as to what you should expect. And if 
player before you has not signed yet, nor the player after. Then you take previous the previous year and calculate the percentage increase of the contract to that next year, and that also gives you a gauge as well. Okay. How does a free agent contract then differ from that rookie contract and negotiation? So, rookie deals, the money itself, for the most part, is pretty much solidified. So, it's not really too much going back and forth. Outside of the things that I previously mentioned, it's not that much going back and forth as far as the money itself um, and how it's going to get paid out, you know, throughout the duration of that contract, you know, again, especially with first-round guys, but even later on. Creators, on the other hand, there's so many different things that come into play because there's not technically a – there's not really a specific amount of years, for example, that a player has to sign a deal for. Um, there's not really a specific way that it has to get paid out. So therefore, you can you can have anywhere from a three-year deal up to, of course, in Mahomes' case, we, we saw what type of extension that he signed. And for the most part, those are your outlier deals. You're probably not going to see as many deals that have 10 years extended onto the back end of an existing contract. Um, but, you know, usually you're looking at contracts, you know, in that three to five year range for players. It's all about the teams are attempting to do what's, you know, best in their best interest. Agent and players are attempting to do what's in our best interest. And so the goal is to try to figure out a way for us to meet in the middle so that we get the dollars that we want and enough guaranteed money out of the situation while the team, you know, on their end, they want to keep salary cap flexibility as well as the ability potentially to get out of a contract if they can. A big topic for the past several years in the NFL has been the franchise tag. So first off for you, do you have a positive, negative, or indifferent view of the tag? You know, I'm I'm speaking for myself, of course, on this one. Um, I'm not speaking for any other agent. I'm not speaking for the NFLPA. The franchise tag can actually work both ways for players. Like, I, I'm I'm fairly indifferent, but all, it also depends on the timing of the tag itself. You know, ultimately, players don't like tag, and, and on the agent side, we don't like the tag because it, it doesn't present any security past that one year. And so if a player, you know, for example, gets injured, in the year in which they're receiving the franchise tag and production dwindles. Now, when you're looking to negotiate a deal past that franchise tag, there's a good chance that it's detrimental to your ability to maximize the next contract. Um, Now, I will say that for quarterbacks, the franchise tag tends to work pretty well for them, and two, because they have longer careers, 
And, you know, I'm not sure if, you, if you've seen, you can look at Kirk Cousins' situation. You can even look at Dak's present situation where because quarterbacks play long enough careers, receiving a franchise tag for one year may not be as detrimental, especially when you're dealing with younger guys. Because even in Dak's case, he's still going to get paid. Um, obviously, it's not going to be this year. But if they, if Dallas were to franchise him next year, then you're looking at roughly $38 million. If they were to attempt to franchise him for a third year, now that number goes up to over $50 million. You know, similar to Kirk Cousins, how the Redskins franchised him the first year. And they franchised him the second year. So that number went up. So now, if anything after that second franchise year, you, you essentially created a floor for negotiations. Because once you get to that second year, you pay that number. Now the third year balloons so much that the second year, that the, excuse me, the second year number is chances are automatically going to be the floor of your negotiation. Interesting. I'm curious, on the business side, if you could change one thing about the NFL, what would it be? Ooh. If I could change one thing about the NFL. Yeah, if we make you king for a day, what would you do? You know something? I don't really... I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty insightful individual. But this one question, I'm not really sure if I have a specific answer to that question. You know, as far as changing one thing about the NFL, you know, it's, it's to, to answer you, I'm not really sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering with all of the leaks that we have from negotiations from different guys like maybe an Adam Schefter or people that are insiders how much stuff goes on behind the scenes that those guys don't catch or that doesn't get reported? Does much get by them? Well, things definitely get by everybody. Do realize that sometimes, and, and this is not, of course, specifically pertaining to him, you know, but a lot of times things are put out there just to kind of gauge what reaction um, or, you know, to try to sway the pendulum a different direction. And in addition to that, I, I will say this much. So when contracts are actually reported, and specifically when you when you hear the numbers to any contract, you know, one thing I tell people, there are terms and conditions, right? And so there are usually conditions that have to be met in order to receive, you know, some of those guaranteed dollars or, you know, receive whatever that bottom line number is. If somebody says this player is getting a, a five-year, $95 million contract, there are certain conditions that are applied to that contract in order for him to receive that deal. So when you hear the guaranteed numbers thrown around, and I, and I know you, you probably see reports all the time of certain guaranteed numbers. So this player has a five-year, $95 million contract with – $70 million guaranteed. And, you know, from the average person, 
when you hear that number, you essentially assume that out of the 95 million, they're guaranteed to at least be 70 of them. However, guarantees are broken down several different ways because you have a certain amount of it that is actually signing bonus, which is right now in your hand upon signing this contract. This is how much you are going to get paid for signing. You have roster bonuses that are predicated upon a player actually being on the roster. You have workout bonuses that are predicated upon the player participating in whatever percentage that is agreed to of all these workouts. If they do so, then they will receive um, that particular amount of guarantees. You have in-game weekly bonuses, meaning some players – Every week that they play, they re- they may receive a certain amount of a of a bonus, maybe forty three thousand dollars a week, just to give you an example. And so, there's so many different ways that bonus money, and not to mention back end incentives, such as making a Pro Bowl, making a Super Bowl, winning a wrestling title, um, scoring a certain amount of touchdowns. So, it's so much that are, that that can be built into the guarantees that a lot of times from the public perspective, they, they really don't realize how much of that is the player more, most likely to get. So if he gets cut year three, does that mean that we take 95 million and divide it by five, multiply that by three? Does that mean that's the amount that he's going to take home? Well, not necessarily, you know, so, when you hear things get reported, of course, conditions are everything. You know, and I and I would I would tell anybody see what the actual conditions are for that player receiving the amount of money, especially the guaranteed money that is being reported. Some of the latest news we've gotten is that the NFL is not going to have a preseason and they're going to have 80-man rosters. That just broke the night as we're recording this show. What are your thoughts on that? Are you happy about it? Well, you know, the the 80-man roster, it's a catch-22 um, because, you know, essentially what it means is that before you actually start training camp, you're going to have to cut anywhere from we'll say about 10 players per team. And you may have some teams that decide to go straight down to a 75-man roster. Now, having said that, as you know, normally after the second preseason game anyway, you start seeing those roster numbers go down to 80 and 75 regardless. And so it's almost essentially cutting out the opportunity within the first couple weeks a training camp for guys to stick around a little bit longer. And, and unfortunately, it's going to affect, you know, certain players who were undrafted free agents, especially. Um, one of the reasons is because the team didn't spend the draft pick on them and also may not have lived out the same amount of guaranteed money. And so, that, you know, it's you don't really have the leverage from that position of certain undrafted free agents. I mean, also guys who may have signed what you call a futures deal, you know, where they signed right before the league year began. You know, usually 
somewhere between the beginning of January and, you know, towards the end of February before the actual next league year begins. But a lot of those guys never had the opportunity to participate with their teammates, especially in a year like this with off-season training activities um, being counseled across the league. And so it's going to affect those guys. Now, on the flip side, you are seeing an increase in the practice squad roster, which would be very advantageous to teams because now, you know, some of those guys who may not necessarily be given the opportunity on the front end will be given opportunities on the back end since the practice squad allotment has increased or is, is looking like it's going to increase to 16 players. So what you lose on the front end, you do gain on the back end. Okay. And my final question for you, we've got a new collective bargaining agreement in the NFL. You're going to have to make deals within it for the next decade. How do you feel about it? Well, you know, the one thing about any CBA is, of course, in its nature, is bargaining by both sides, and both sides agree to it. There are some, you know, it's always middle ground, right? And so, you know, but overall, the deal itself, you know, is going to work to, to the advantage of players in some ways. And, you know, especially when it comes to certain off the field things, it may work to their advantage. And then in, in certain other ways, it may not necessarily work to their advantage. But, you know, I, I would say that the future of the league is bright upon getting past the pandemic. The revenue should roll in as expected, and 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 upon that, you know, I think when it comes to negotiating deals, there will be more more money available for teams to spend. And of course, if they have more money to spend, that's good news for the players in the age. Kari, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate you for inviting me. Thank you so much.